Uh, well, there are a bunch of things that I experienced in my childhood that my children will never get to experience. For example, um, uh, when a cassette gets stuck or gets chewed up by the tape player, you know, the sound of that, whoa, 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 whoa you know, with a sound going on as well. Uh, my kids will never experience that. And they'll never, they'll never know what to do with that either. They'll never know. If I were to give them a pencil in that situation, they wouldn't know what to do with it, would they? But we would. If you don't know, then you're too young to belong to our church. Sorry, you can't come anymore. But uh, the other thing is they'll never know how big Rolos really used to be. You know, have you, have you had a tube of Rolos recently? It's so disappointing. They'll never know what it was like to listen to football results for what seemed like hours waiting for the A-team to start. You know, like Crystal Palace 1, Fulham United 2, Dundee United 2. It was like, this is just the most frustrating thing in the world. My kids will never experience that. And the thing that I've been thinking about this week that just seems to have disappeared from our lives over the last little while, is um, the moment in a TV drama, usually something like Columbo, where uh, there's a villain and they walk up to a car and then they just slip underneath the car and then they snip the brake pipes with their, uh, like a, I was going to say tweezers, uh, pl <laughs> pliers, wire cutters. And then, you know, shortly after that, somebody's driving that car and they're whistling along, the wind's in their hair, they're around the nice country bends and then they start going down a hill and then it's like, what the, you know, it's like, oh my goodness, what on earth is happening here? It's just gone. Like, where is that gone? Anyway, the point is, the point is, it seems to me that that picture of the vehicle that's been sabotaged is a really interesting picture to describe the story of the Old Testament. You might be thinking, what on earth is he talking about? I'm beginning to wonder myself. However, the story of the Old Testament is a story about a promise. And the promise uh, is uh, that God is going to pour out his blessing to the nations, that all the nations of the earth would experience the blessing of God. And he takes that promise and he puts that promise, that precious promise, into a vehicle. And that vehicle is family. And it's actually one family, Abraham's family. And he says, this is the way that my blessing is going to be carried to the nations, is through this vehicle, which is family. And then you have the enemy, the devil, seeking to sabotage the vehicle, seeking to come along and snip the brake pipes or put an apple on the end of the exhaust or put a kipper into the air conditioning or whatever it is they used to do to sabotage cars, you know, to try and prevent that vehicle from getting, it, getting to its destination. And so it seems to me that the story of the Old Testament is a story that on one level is a, just a whole bunch of human stories about relationships breaking down. You know, uh, uh, parents who, who aren't great parents, or siblings who fall out, or uh, people who have adulterous relationships, or, or, you know, fathers who aren't the fathers that they should be. And, and so on one level you could say, well, that's just a series of, you know, unfortunate events, or you could say that is God placing his promise into a vehicle and then the enemy trying to do everything he possibly can to sabotage family life and relationships. And 
the reason why that's so important, that picture, is because we, as the family of God, in our generation, you know, as we seek to receive the promises and the blessing of God, and then to be a vehicle of that to the world, we live in real danger of the enemy coming along and snipping at the brake pipes, of trying to derail our relationships in all kinds of different ways, because he does not want to see the promises of God fulfilled in our generation. And he does not want the blessing of God to go to the nations. And the truth is, that if you've been around church for a little while, you know this is true. You know it. Because you've seen it. The single greatest threat to the fruitfulness of the kingdom of God in our lives and through our lives is the threat that the enemy poses to our relationships. And we've been uh, praying as a leadership team for a while now and thinking about this whole concept of the, uh, you know, the, the significance and importance of relationships and the threat to them for a little while. And it seems to me that what we're seeing now across the whole church is a whole series of terrible, terrible situations that are arising precisely because the enemy is at work with his pliers. And so what we're going to do over the next six months probably is we're going to do two teaching series in parallel. One of them in the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a book that touches a lot on relationships and marriages and all these kinds of things, as well as a whole bunch of other exciting stuff. And I'm going to do a series in parallel to that on the story of Joseph. And I'm calling the series A Relationships Revolution because our prayer is so much, God, please will you perform a revolution in our relationships, in the way that we relate to one another. And please will you challenge every aspect of our relationships in order that you would strengthen them. You know, marriages, uh, parent-child relationships, friendships, uh, people who are dating, uh, you know, uh, relationships within the church, relationships outside the church. God, please will you just help us to do this whole relationships things better. Jesus said, by this People will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And so that there's some, there needs to be something revolutionary about our relationships that is dramatically different from the way that people do relationships elsewhere. And so we'll just crack on and we'll look at this uh, story of Joseph. And we're going to look this morning at the story of Joseph's birth. So he doesn't do much in this particular passage except for get born. Uh, but it seems like a good place to start. And... Um, just to give, it, give a bit of background while you're turning to Genesis chapter 29. Uh, Joseph's dad is called Jacob. And Jacob is running for his life because of a whole series of terrible decisions that he's made. And he arrives at his uncle's house. His uncle is called Laban. And uh, he meets Laban's daughter, who is a babe. You know, she is hot. Uh, and... Um, yeah, uh, you know, and, and he falls in love with her and he says to Laban, please can I marry her? And Laban says, yeah, 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 of course you can, of course you can. And uh, they set up the wedding day and the wedding day comes and, you know, by the time it, the ceremony is all finished and all that, perhaps it's getting a bit dark and she's wearing a veil and so uh, it's only the next morning he wakes up and he's like, oh, 
you're not the one I was wanting to marry. You're somebody different. Uh, and, and it turns out he's married Rachel's sister, who's called Leah. And that's a bit awkward, isn't it? You know, marrying the wrong person. Anyone who's engaged right now, don't marry the wrong person. That would be a bad move. And so uh, as a result of that, he says, well, I really do love Rachel. I want to be married to her. And so he marries them both, which is interesting. And... Um, However, the verse immediately before where we're going to start, which is 29 verse 30, it says that his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. So it's not, a lo- uh, you know, it's not an equal situation. It's, it's definitely an unfair situation. And what we're about to read is something that would be absolutely the kind of thing that you might see on Jeremy Kyle. So I believe. <laughs> so, Genesis 29 verse 31 When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It's because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I'm not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. By the way, just so you know, if you, if you read back at this story later on, if you look at the footnotes, in, you know, which are the little uh, words at the bottom of the page, they'll tell you a bit more about what their names mean and stuff like that, but we don't have time to do that today. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So, I, so she named him Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? And then just for the sake of brevity, we're going to skip down a bit. But just so you know, there's a bunch more babies born. And then verse 14 During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take away my son's mandrakes too? Yeah. Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later she gave birth to a daughter and named named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. Well, See what I mean? It's, it's, uh, it is a little bit, uh, 
what was the name? Jerry Springer, isn't it? It's a little bit Jerry Springer. And it's an incredibly complicated, tangled web of relationships. And that web of relationships is a web of misery. Nobody's happy. And there is pressure on every single relationship. And what I want to do, first of all, is look at some of the pressures that these relationships are under, because I think they're really relevant to us today in our world. And the first one is the pressure of comparison. One of the pressures that Leah is under that really strains their relationships is that she is constantly made aware of the fact that she isn't as beautiful as her sister. Now, people compare their lives with other people's lives all the time. And comparison is almost always destructive, isn't it? You know, you might, maybe you uh, go around to a friend's house for dinner and you're like, oh, why can I not have a house like this? Or you go and hang out with somebody's family and you're like, why is my family not like that? Or you see somebody and they're, they're really gifted in something that you would write, like to be really gifted in and you're like, it's just not fair. They are unfairly gifted in that area and it's, and it's just, it's not fair. Or maybe you see someone and they've got the latest iPhone 6, you know, and you've got your Nokia 3210 or something like that and it's like, you know, why don't I ever get things like that? There are all kinds of things that we compare ourselves uh, and it's almost always destructive. But the area that Leah compares herself is the area of her appearance. Now, Leah, it, it says about Leah that she has weak eyes. And we don't really know what weak eyes means. You know, maybe she had, didn't have very good eyesight. Maybe her eyes looked a bit funny. Maybe uh, it's just trying to say that she was just really ordinary and plain looking. And maybe she might have been the pretty one in any other family. However, she has the misfortune to be born into the family that has Rachel in it. And Rachel is drop-dead gorgeous. It says something like, you know, she's beautiful of figure and face or something like that. It's like she is everything that a woman would wish that she was. And in fact, the Bible hardly ever comments on women's appearance. Do you know that? You know, we might put a lot of uh, value on those things but actually there are only three women that I can find in the Bible that, are, that we're told they're beautiful one of them is Rachel one of them is Abigail and the other one is Esther so it's almost as if the Bible is saying look I don't normally comment on this kind of stuff but in particular you know she is really really you know 11 out of 10 she's she's nice looking she's unattainably beautiful and so Leah lives her life in the shadows and her self-esteem is crushed by the constant comparison. And what's heartbreaking about the story is that her dad, you know, who should be saying, these things are so unimportant. You know, let's look at what God has given you. Let's look at how God has created you, the beauty that God has given you. But instead, he treats her like a commodity and he tries to get rid of her. You know, and, and her husband, who should nurture her and adore her and, and say, look, I love you. Instead, uh, he favors her sister. And so she's marinated in this culture of comparison. And it seems to me that that picture is a very relevant picture to us today because we are all marinated in a culture that parades the beautiful people past our eyes all the time. And so even 
Uh, you know, all the time we are made to feel like we're ugly. And, you know, some of you, probably most of you, say, I don't need to be told I live in a culture of comparison and that there are beautiful people in the world because this is my life. I know it. And our culture kind of scours the earth for the tallest, slimmest, most beautiful women and then it, it takes them into a place where then they're made up to within an inch of their lives, and then they're taken into a photographic studio where the lighting is just perfect, and then they have tens of thousands probably of photographs taken of them wearing the most beautiful clothes that are perfectly tailored to fit them, and then those tens of thousands of photos are whittled down to three or four photos, and then they're put through Photoshop and airbrushed to within an inch of their lives, so that those photos represent people who don't look anything like any of us. They're not real people. Nobody on the planet looks like the pictures we see. And it's almost like our society is constantly saying to us, you don't deserve love unless you look like that. It's one of the reasons why pornography is so damaging to relationships. Because, and just forgive me for being really crass for a moment, but in porn, the boobs aren't real, the orgasms aren't real, there are no mummy tummies, there are no apple or pear shapes, there, there are no spots, there are no stretch marks. It's not real. And so what it does is it feeds a violent insecurity in both men and women that terrorizes relationships. And so we as Christians have a decision to make about how we respond to all of that stuff. Will we feed our minds with things that increase that insecurity and therefore damage all of our relationships and our ability to relate to one another? Or will we say, no, no, we are not playing ball with that? That's the first thing, the pressure of comparison. Secondly, the pressure of competition. One of the worst aspects of this story is that these two women are forced to compete for their husband's affection. No wife should ever have to compete for their husband's affection. It's funny, isn't it? You know, it seems to me that all children are made, are born, are created with the desire to create things. You know, even little babies, they don't just want to puke on you. They want to puke and then smear because then it's art, isn't it? You know, or it's amazing what a very small child can do with a yogurt and a piece of carrot. You know, to, it's, it's always creating all the time. You give a, a, a child who's just about able to hold a crayon a crayon and they'll create something. And then the pressure comes when they can talk because then they start saying, well, you know, what do you think it is, Dad? And you're like, oh no, uh, is it a space shuttle or is it me? I have absolutely no idea. Um, when my little girl was about four, she drew a picture of our family. And it was obviously our family because there were you know, five round circles with smiley faces and arms and legs coming out of them. And it was obvious which one was me because I was the biggest, which made me feel really great. I can tell you, big round chubby chuck, you know, it was like... And, uh, 
so I'm looking at this picture, and I, you know, there's the sunshine, and and there's the sky and the birds, and then there's a, a ball, and it looks like it's a beach, and there's the sea. So I'm like, okay. So I said, I think this is a, a picture of us going to the beach, and she said, that's right, it is. And then as I looked at the picture, I saw that um, the really big round person had this kind of square box next to them coming out of them. And I was like, oh, what's that box that you've drawn, darling? And she said, that's daddy's phone. Wow. Nobody that we love should ever have to compete for our affection and least of all with an electronic gadget. You know, the question for us today is who or what has become way too important in our lives that the people we love the most are having to compete for our affection? The pressure of competition. Thirdly, the pressure of conditional love. The best kind of love is the kind of love that resembles God's love. And we often sing songs about God's love. It's relentless. It's unstoppable. God will never let go. And that is absolutely the case. Probably the best picture of uh, God's unstoppable and unconditional love is this story in Scripture of the prodigal son. Because there is a father who loves his son no matter what. And his son you know, uh, says, I, I wish you were dead. I never want to see you ever again. And I want to take all the family money with me. And off I go. And he, that, you know, is devastating his actions. And yet when he's absolutely destitute, he comes back to his dad. And he imagines that his actions will have chased his dad away. But actually, his dad runs. He runs. And he embraces his son. And he kisses him. God's love is relentless, it's unstoppable, it's unmovable, and our love for one another should be like that. The, hus- the, 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 the love of a husband for his wife should be completely unconditional and, you know, unstoppable. The, the, the love of a wife for her husband, the love of a friend to another friend, the love of uh, a parent for their child should be unconditional, and yet so often it's not like that. And many of us will know the pain of trying to earn somebody's love. You know, for many of us, we've grown up in families where it's like, what do I have to do? What do I have to do for you to tell me that you love me? And many of us will know that that thing of, oh no, my school report's here. You know, will it be a school report that, that my parents communicate back to me, well done, we love you, we're proud of you, or will it be, what on earth is that? We all know, so many of us know the pain that's caused by conditional love. And so you have these pressures, and of course there are lots more pressures on relationships, aren't there? And we don't, you know, there are lots more pressures in this story that we don't have time to get to uh, Pressure, pressure, pressure all the time on our relationships. How do we deal with the pressure? How do we resolve the pressure that is on our relationships? Well, 
they deal with that in a not so great way. And let's just look at a few of the ways they try to deal with the pressure that's on their relationships. The first thing, or in fact it's the last thing, but it's, I'm doing it in reverse order. They try to numb the pain. There is pain everywhere in this situation. You know, uh, uh, every single person is experiencing the kind of agony that Leah communicates when she says, the Lord has seen my misery. And the way that Rachel tries to deal with the pain is she tries to get hold of these things called mandrakes. And mandrakes are a kind of a root vegetable type of a thing. Um, And the theologians come up with all kinds of suggestions as to why she wants to get hold of mandrakes. Uh, It may well be that they were seen as a kind of a fertility thing, you know, like a fertility drug, and that's why she was so keen to get hold of it. I found it fascinating. Um, It's also a narcotic. It's It's a strong sedative. And I just wonder whether Leah, and this may not be true, but I just wonder whether Leah was saying, I just want something that will take away my pain. And I'm going, to give, I'm going to take that myself and I'm going to give that to my husband and maybe we can just push down the pain and just forget the pain exists. And my wife Taryn and I, just after we got married, I realized that we are different people in a really significant way, which maybe should have thought of that before. But... Um, she, uh, one of the things that I noticed is that we have very different attitudes towards the medicine cabinet. You know, Taryn has a response to pain, which is basically denial. You know, I, I, don't worry, she was at the other site when I said this, and she was nodding all the way. She, I call it martyr syndrome. You know, it's like, no, no, this is a mere flesh wound. I don't need to take medicine yet. You know, I'm still breathing. I don't need medicine. All I need is just a brisk walk in the fresh air. You know, a good sleep. I'll be fine. Uh, hands up if you're that sort of person. You don't want to take medicine. You're just, just going to soldier on. You drive us crazy, by the way. <laughs> and then the, the, the other side is, is me. Uh, basically, as soon as I've got a slight sniffle, I'm at the chemist. And I'm saying, just give me whatever you've got. And, and, you know, can I take this one with this one with this one and, you know, creating a little timetable in a notebook that says, okay, I could take this one then, this one then, this one then. Uh, and um, hands up if you're that person. You just want to medicate. Medicate. Medication is the solution. Some of you just don't want to own up to anything. But we, those are the two responses to pain in relationships. Either I'm going to swallow this down I'm going to forget that it exists. I'm going to, going to go into denial. Or I'm just going to try and numb the pain. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it quite hard to get hold of good quality mandrakes these days. Uh, and so instead of mandrakes, we use different things. We use red wine and rubbish TV and cigarettes and prescription medication and nitol. And, you know, we use all kinds of things to just numb away the pain. Well, here's the thing. The pain is, is there to tell you there's a problem. And the worst thing that you can do is to numb the pain or ignore the pain. The thing we need to do is to recognize the pain is there because of a problem and to try to deal with the problem. The second thing that they try to do is they, they try to resolve the problem between the sheets Rachel uses drugs, Leah uses sex, and she, she, she seems to think that by having, uh, arranging to have sex with Jacob, then this problem will all go away. 
And I just wonder whether this is almost like a word for those of us who are uh, uh, dating in, an, in a dating couple. Because it seems to me that she is making the mistake that young people of every generation have made in the past, which is, if I sleep with him, he will love me. Or, he must love me, he's having sex with me. Well, here's the thing. What they need is a loving, balanced, healthy, affirming, encouraging, God-focused relationship. And sex is not the way to achieve that goal. Do you notice that she is saying all the time, you know, maybe my husband will love me now. Does it make any difference? She's producing all these babies. She's having all this sex. Has it made any difference? Okay, and the third one is have a baby. Now, we have lots of babies being born around our church at the moment, and I really love that, uh, partly because, if I'm totally honest, well, it's one way to grow a church, isn't it? You know, one baby at a time. And uh, we know that for at least the first few years, they're going to be you know, coming to church, which is really great. So that works out well. Um, and I love, I, I love everything about that. I, I, I love, you know, we're just hearing earlier on from Justin about his new baby and all that. How brilliant is that? And, and the truth is that all parents just adore their babies and, and they can see that, you know, they're just the most beautiful baby that's ever been born. Now, we all know that babies are mostly ugly, but we don't say that, do we? No, so uh, anyway. So... Anyway, the point, the point is, there are lots of really, really great reasons for having a baby. And, and if you're a married couple, uh, you know, having a baby is a lovely thing. But, oh no, my husband doesn't love me, or my relationship is falling apart. Having a baby is not glue. And this may well be just a little something that probably is relevant for nobody here, but maybe one time in the future somebody will remember. I think there was a message about that once. Maybe we won't have a baby just yet. Maybe we'll try and get our relationship some help first. Because Taryn and I were just down in Devon for the Easter holidays, and we spent some time with her brother. And he's just ha- he and his wife have had a little baby boy. And all I can tell you is they're absolutely exhausted, you know. Uh, they're absolutely skint because they've had to buy all the stuff. Uh, they're loving the journey, but it is stressful. All right, Justin, it is stressful. <laughs> Having a baby is not glue for a relationship. That's all I'm saying. Okay, so th- that's the ways that they try and resolve these kind of issues and try and resolve the pain. And yeah, in the midst of their pain, they actually do get a revelation about the right thing to do. And you see that both of them get this moment where they're like, oh, suddenly I know what to do with my pain. The first thing is for Leah in 29 verse 35, it says, you know, having experienced so much pain and sorrow, she says, this time I will praise the Lord. It's like, finally, I know what to do with my pain. I'm going to take my pain and I'm going to package it up and I'm going to draw near to God and I'm going to give it to him. I'm going to take my refuge in God. That's what we do with our pain. We draw near to God. 
How do we deal with the pressure that weighs so heavily on us sometimes that it feels like it might crush us? We bring it to God because God is always on the throne. There is never a moment, never a day, never a season where God is not on the throne. I love how Jesus did that. You know, if anyone knew what pressure was, it's Jesus. Constant pressure. And there's a moment in Matthew's Gospel where he's had a a couple of chapters of intense pressure. He's gone back to his hometown and they've said, no, no, you're a carpenter's son. We want nothing to do with you. And then immediately after that, his cousin is beheaded for speaking truth. And then immediately after that, he's trying to get some alone time with God. And all the time, he's got crowds following him to the point where he's got 5,000 men, which is maybe fifteen to 20,000 people, and they're pressing in on him. And all the time, this intense pressure. And then he says, enough. Matthew 14, 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples. He made the disciples go on ahead of him to the other side. And afterwards, he went up up on a mountainside by himself to pray. How do you deal with the pressure you draw near to God? I love Psalm 31. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. So Leah draws near to God. Rachel, actually Rachel's response is very similar. Right at the end of our passage that we read, she has this baby, Joseph. And it says in verse 23, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. And actually the word uh, Joseph means to add. And it sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for take away. And she's doing this little word play on the subject. What she's saying is, God is the only one who can take away my shame. And God is the only one who can add goodness to my life. God has taken away and God will add. That's what she says. And so, in the pressure and the pain, we go to God and he performs a divine exchange. We say, God, I'm not myself, but I want to be. And I'm struggling in my pain and I don't know how to deal with this, Lord, but I'm, I know that you can take away my shame and my sin and you can take away everything that stops me from being me. And then you can add to my life goodness and gentleness and patience and kindness and joy and peace. It's a divine exchange. Um, Let me just finish with this. This family is the ultimate dysfunctional family. You know, you might think you've got a dysfunctional family, but this really is a dysfunctional family. And, and I just think, you know, if we only had these pages of the Bible, we would imagine that this family is never heard from again. 
wouldn't we? We would think, well, they, you know, and they all went off to live in some trailer park somewhere where they just lived as one big happy family and that was the end of that. But actually what we discover as we read on through the story is that these children who were born into utter dysfunction, they become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And through that family comes Jesus, the Messiah, who brings salvation to the whole world. And the reason that's important is, number one, because some of us here have had very dysfunctional childhoods and you've lived in families where it's like nobody else has a family like mine. If God can bring about the salvation of the whole world through this tangled mess that is this family, then he can do that with you too. And ultimately, Joseph, and we'll come on to his story in future weeks, obviously, but his story is that he is powerfully used by God in his generation to fulfill the purposes of God. God is not put off by your childhood and your family. The dysfunction of your family is not a problem to God. The other thing we learn is that this is an utter mess. I mean, this is a mess. And yet God is able to untangle the mess. And, you know, there'll be people here, it's like, I am in a mess. Like, you know, we all have one of those drawers in our house, which is full of phone chargers, you know, for phones that we don't even have anymore, and uh, plugs to plug the toaster into the kettle, and, you know, like, whatever. You know, it's like we have these massive cables, and there is absolutely no point keeping that drawer full of cables because you could never untangle them, even if you wanted to use one of them. For many of us, we have lives or aspects of our lives that is like that. It's like, I can't untangle this, God. The story of Joseph tells us that God can untangle any mess. Let me just finish with this, and this isn't in my notes, but obviously for some people here, when you heard that story, the thing that you most identified with is the fact that Rachel wasn't able to have a child. And, you know, there are lots of babies everywhere else in our church but maybe you in your situation either you're hoping for a child and it's not happening or somebody has you know a medical expert or whoever has spoken over your life and said you'll never have children because of x y and z do you know ultimately the end of Rachel's story is that God hears her and he provides a child for her and obviously for all of us who, are, who might find ourselves in that situation, medical expertise is the way to go. But also, we need to bring it to the Lord. And do you know what? We would just love to pray with you if that is the thing that you're facing. And who knows what the Lord might do. Why don't we stand?